You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. And we would like to uh, look specifically at verse uh, 16 down through 20. And we're really going to centralize on uh, verse 18 uh, for a concept that he wants to give to us. And I want you to look at tonight, Matthew chapter 28. We'll begin reading at verse 16. There are three stories in chapter uh, 28. There is the first story which is given to us in verse 1 down through verse 10, which uh, I'm calling the, uh, the uh, angel's dissension. And then there is the story from verse 11 down through verse 15, uh, which I'm calling the Sanhedrin's deception. And then verse 16 through 20, which you know of as the Great Commission, and uh, we're calling it the Resurrection's Declaration. Uh, look at verse 16 with me, uh, reading down through verse 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen, amen. It's a great promise, isn't it? My, my. Interesting thing about this passage is that as you look at verse 16 down through 20, especially if you have the red letter edition, you will notice there's a natural division in the passage. There are the first two verses which we might call the narrative setting. And of course, the, he sets the whole stage for what's going to take place in verse 18, 19, and 20. And then as you look at the last three verses of this passage, which are the climactic verses of the entire book of Matthew, you see that they literally contain the words of Jesus. So in the passage, you've got this natural division, the narrative setting, and the words of Jesus himself being spoken to us. You will notice in verse 16 and 17 that in the narrative setting, the entire focus is upon us or the disciples, which of course we are included in that. The entire focus of the setting, as he gives in verse 16 and 17, is zeroed in on us, and he's giving us some kind of uh, conditions, he's giving us some kind of requirements, that if actually what's going to take place in verse 18, 19, and 20 is actually going to happen, these things must be in your life and in my life. And so the conditions are set up in verse 16 and 17. In verse 16, you'll notice he's talking to us about surrender. We're calling that the uh, atmosphere of the mission. And as you talk about surrender, you know that there is no, going to be no carrying out of the mission unless there is surrender. That the heart of Christianity in relationship to our viewpoint is the dynamic of surrender. That God is always calling us to surrender. He's never calling us to anything else but just surrender. He's always bringing us back to one thing. Would you just surrender? Come on, would you just give yourself? Come on, would you just surrender? Surrender is the key. 
You'll notice in verse 16, the 11 disciples have shown up where they're supposed to be. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's surrender in itself. See, they missed the whole dynamic of the appearance of Jesus uh, down in the uh, tomb scene because they weren't there. See, they missed the earthquake and the angel appearing because they didn't show up. They missed the whole scene of the crucifixion and the impact of that thing because, we, as we learned, they were not there. See, they just didn't show up where they were supposed to be. But here in this passage, oh, they've finally shown up where they're supposed to be. Now understand it wasn't some light thing. It wasn't just some make your way to an altar and sign a card type deal. See, they've gone all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, which was 80 to 100 miles, and they had to walk all the way without days in, of course. So here they are going this entire distance and you realize that they've set aside all of their plans. See, they've reestablished their fishing business. They are trying to figure out how they're going to put their families back together and how they're going to repair the house and how they're going to get everything set up like it was before. But now they're being called to set all of that aside and come back to surrender and focus in again on what Jesus has called them to. So there's no question at all that verse 16 is all about surrender and he's calling us to that. When you come to verse 17, he's giving us the content of that surrender. For you realize there's all kinds of surrender. Oh, you put a gun in my back and I immediately surrender. No problem there. Hey, when you overpower me, I surrender. Hey, when there's some scary thing coming at me, sure, I'm surrendered, man. Oh, I surrender. No problem with that. But that's not the kind of surrender he's talking about. So he gives us the content of the surrender in verse 17. And when you look there, you see it's all about submission, which is the attitude of the mission. So here we have this tremendous atmosphere that's going to permeate everything that's going to happen in the spilling out of our lives to win a world. And it's the atmosphere of surrender. And right at the heart of that surrender is this content, which is none other than this submission. And it's all, it's all capitulated in that word, uh, worshipped him. Oh, they worshipped him. They fell at his feet. See, again, this is not a gun in the back. This is not I have to. This is all I get to. This is not duty. This is delight. This is not law. This is love, passion. This is being captivated by who he is until there's this internal driving passion that just will not leave you alone. And it just motivates you and drives you and moves you. And you just have to be involved in the mission. You just have to spill your life out. It isn't because some pastors made you feel guilty or some evangelist has yelled at you. It isn't because there's rules of the church. It isn't because there's some program set up, you see. It's because there's this deep internal, I just got to get involved in this. I just have to spill my life out. I have to give myself up. That's the surrender he's talking about. We have a word for that, you know. It's the word holiness. Because holiness is summarized up in one thing. It's this overwhelming passionate love for God that just burns and will not let me loose. It's this overwhelming drive inside that just, just, I just can't do anything except, I just can't keep from doing this. You understand that's the heart of God. See, I'm absolutely convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that when we focus on evangelism, we end up not doing it. When we focus on evangelism, we come up with neat programs, but then the programs wane and we got to come up with other programs. When we focus on evangelism, oh, we have seminars, we train to do it, and then we, and then it fades, and then we're, and then we're nowhere, and we got the knowledge and we have the guilt, but we don't do anything because we're focused on evangelism. But I'm absolutely convinced that when you forget evangelism and you go out to the heart of God, and when you begin to live at the throbbing heart of God, something begins to take place that you just can't keep from evangelizing. Somehow you just gotta spill your life out. Somehow it just takes place, and that evangelism is a byproduct of getting close to the heart of God. Oh, if 
you could live at the throbbing heart of God. Because when you see like he sees, when you begin to feel like he feels, when you get close enough to him that well, his heartbeat begins to throb within your heartbeat, when you begin to feel his pulse beat beating through you, suddenly you begin to take on his care and you care about what he cares about and you're moved by what he's moved with. And it's all about this heart of God thing, see. That's why we keep talking to you about seeking. If we could just seek the heart of God, if you could just focus in, if you could forget everything else except him, and if you could just go after him, and if you'd get close to his heart, we would need to worry about anything else. It would just all begin to take place, you see. Evangelism, the mission would begin to happen. That's what he's talking about, submission. So this is not some kind of resurrected Lord who's hovering in midair yelling at us, making us feel guilty and scaring us to death. So we had to come to surrender. What else could we do? No, this is love, passion. This is internal burn. This is, oh, I got to. I found his heart and suddenly it begins to flow through me. And so the whole focus of the narrative setting is upon us and these conditions. Now that brings us, of course, to the section, verse 18, 19, and 20, which are the words of Christ himself. Now you have to admit that it's it's really significant that Matthew coming to the climax of his book and there would have been a thousand ways that he could have ended this book and come out with a, a overwhelming brilliant climax and a great thrust. You have to admit it's significant that the last three verses of the entire book are nothing but the words of Jesus. Wow. Ah. That's got to mean something. And we're specifically looking at verse 18. Look at that verse. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, we're calling that the supply, the amount for the mission. In the narrative setting, that is verse 16 and 17, the focus was entirely upon us. But now you'll note there is an extreme shift in the focus. And now as Jesus begins to speak, the entire focus is upon him. Whew, I love this. See, this whole thing is all about him. But somehow when you talk about supply, somehow when you talk about supply for living, somehow when you talk about supply for the mission, somehow when you talk about resource to get it done, somehow when you, when you come right down to bottom line and say, what, what do we got in the bank here to pull this off? When the committee meets and says, hey, here's what we want to do and, and how can we actually pull this off and what resource do we have to get this done? Isn't it interesting? He brings us back to only one single thing himself. That he is the sole supply. Look at the words. All authority has been given to me, both in heaven and in earth. That the entire focus is upon him, the person, the person of Jesus Christ himself. You see, it's not that this Jesus went into his shop and he, he messed around with his chemistry set and he came up with a, a formula. And after he came up with a formula to get the job done, he made several batches of it. And now we come on Sunday morning and get a fresh batch and go out and use it all week long and come back and report how we did and get another batch and go out. And he gives us the supply, but we have to keep coming on Sunday. And if you're really busy, you have to come on Wednesday night because you really run out in the middle of the week too. So here's this supply and we just keep coming to get this supply. See, it's not like that at all. See, he, he himself is the creator of the formula, and he himself is the formula. See, see, he himself is the author of the book, but guess what? He's the book he's written. So he's not only the author, he's the book itself. 
See, if you look close, you'll see that he is the high priest. He is standing there offering the sacrifice for our sins. But don't ever forget, ladies and gentlemen, if you look real close, he's the sacrifice itself. So he's not only the high priest, he is the sacrifice. In fact, what you find out is he is everything there is, that outside of him there is nothing, that he's the sum total. We're talking about the person, the actual person, the literal actual person of Jesus Christ himself. He is the sum total of all there is. There is nothing outside of him. And if you find anything outside of him, I don't want it. See, we've learned that, haven't we? That He doesn't give us strength, He is strength. You don't get holiness, He is holy. And when you get next to Him, it kind of rubs off on you. And everything in Christianity is derived from the person, which brings us back to one overwhelming focus. Would you just get all wrapped up in Him? Would you just begin to see Him? Would you just go after Him? Would you just come back to the beating heart of God? Would you just, with your whole being, seek to be intimate with Him? Would you just let your whole system be enveloped with Him? Would you just concentrate on Him? For what else is there? Now that brings us to the concept that we want to try to talk about tonight at the beginning of verse 18. Because all of this has something to do with the presentation he's making to us in the beginning phrases of verse 18. And the concept goes something like this, that, that he's setting up some kind of a, a, a relationship between the person of Jesus Christ on the one hand, who's doing the speaking, and, and the word and its power that is being spoken. So there's this, there's this relationship, you understand, between the, the person of Jesus Christ and the word of Jesus Christ. And they are so intimate, re intimately related that you can hardly separate them, and yet we can separate them. And we know the word is the word, and he is who he is, and he is the person, and this is the word, and yet they are so intimate, rela intimately related that you can hardly, you can hardly divide them. See, we believe in the spoken word and the written word. We believe that the Word has power. We believe that there is a, an overwhelming thrust that's happening in the Word. We believe that this book, for instance, is not like Reader's Digest. It's not like Shakespeare. It's not like great literature. That you can't take this book, this, this Word thing, and put it in the category of nice literature. You don't study it. It studies you, friend. So you don't divide it. It'll cut you to pieces, brother. Because there's something about this word that is alive and moving and functioning in its very being. That when you touch this, it reaches out and grabs you, son. When you touch this, it touches you. It gets all over you, so. So there's like this is some kind of a living organism. But we don't worship a book, you understand that? And we don't have a God called the Bible. No, 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 no. We know that here is the living person. And that the word receives its power from the person who has spoken that word. And that this word is some kind of a, an extension of the person himself. And all that's going on in the word is derived from the person who has literally brought the word into existence. And he himself has done that. So this, this word thing, the, the, the aliveness of the word, the sharper than a two-edged sword stuff of the word comes right out of the, uh, the essence of the person himself. Ah, oh, verse 18, I could stand up and say those words as if they were uh, uh, applied to me. I could stand up and say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And you would laugh, wouldn't you? You would laugh. Why? Because that's a joke. Good night. You know better than that. 
There's no power in those words when I say them and apply them to myself. That the only power that's in those words is the one who has spoken them. And so this, this word thing has this overwhelming significant life in it. But we all know it's derived right out of this person. And so you've got this interaction going on between the person on the one hand and his word on the other hand. Let me try to help you with the concept as he gives it to us. Verse 18, start with this. Coming of his person. And Jesus came. Man, that's powerful. And Jesus came. Coming of his person. Isn't it interesting? He begins this whole word thing with that statement. And Jesus came. I have never found a passage like verse 16 and 20 where the conjunctions seem to be so important in the understanding of the passage. Did you note there's a conjunction beginning verse 18? And Jesus came the word and there, that conjunction, literally as a culminative conjunction. It means it reaches back and grabs a hold of what's gone on before and builds on it. And that it's not a stagnant thing. It's not a chop that off and begin here thing. It's not this is the end and we're starting here now. It's all connected. And somehow this begins to flow into this. And the sense of this, verse 18, literally hangs on what has gone before and builds off of what has gone before in verse 17. Well, what's going on in verse 17? The ending phrase of verse 17 is, but some doubted. Now that phrase really is connected more with verse 18 than with verse 17. And you'll notice the phrase, but some doubted, also has a conjunction to it. But, which is a contrasting conjunction. In other words, he paints one picture over here and says, but, let me give you another picture over here. For instance, in verse 17, he said, the disciples saw Jesus and they worshipped him. Here they are. They saw him and they fell down on their face and worshipped him. Well, you can understand that. Here's this resurrected Christ. They've seen him, man. And they fell flat on their face and began to worship him. But, even then some doubted. Now, you'll remember from this passage that they're telling us that probably the 500 disciples who saw the resurrected Christ all at one time were probably here at this particular scene. And maybe that's so. But Matthew eliminates all of that. He doesn't seem to care about any of that. He just is specific about these 11 disciples. And here are 11 disciples who fell on their face because they've seen this resurrected Christ. But some are doubting. And then he moves you to this conjunction at the beginning of verse 18. And do you know what Jesus' response was to that? Jesus came. Isn't that the gospel message? Wow. The simplicity of the gospel message. Here we are doubting. And you know how he responds? He draws close, man. He comes. He says, hey, let me show you. He gets intimately involved. But that's always the gospel story, isn't it? See, we sinned. And what did Jesus do? Here he comes dying on a cross, man. See, we failed, and what did Jesus do? Oh, forevermore, he picks us up and sends us on our way with his strength and power and being. See, we're lost, and how does he respond? He comes and finds us. We're wallowing in our ignorance, and what does he do? He comes with the dynamic of his wisdom and permeates our mind with the very insight of his very being. Here we are, not knowing where to go or what to do, and what does he do? Here he comes with his overwhelming guidance. See, that's always the gospel story. Here we are doubting, and what does he do? Hey, here he comes. He shows up and speaks to us. The gospel story. But if you're really going to get a hold of this, you need to come to grips with the word came, and Jesus came. 
Now, you know, there's several words in the New Testament language that we translate came or come. And, of course, that's such a common verb to us, it has very little meaning, but not so in the New Testament. There's a concept that revolves around the word that he's using right here, Jesus came. There's a concept of that word, very significant. See, it doesn't just mean that he went from one geographical location to another geographical location. That's not what it's talking about. The idea, the concept of the word right there literally has to do with drawing near, approaching in other words, you can translate it that way. And Jesus drew near. That what Matthew is really trying to tell us is that here was Jesus afar off. Here was Jesus some distance from them. Here was Jesus way out there. The disciples have spotted him. It's the resurrected Lord. And they fall flat on their face. But he's still some distance from them. And they're still doubting. And yet in their doubt, here comes this Jesus from that far distance. And he draws near to them to clarify and clear up they're doubting. He has drawn near that he might be intimate with them. He has come close. That's the meaning of the word there. Jesus coming close. Wow. That's so simple, isn't it? Did you ever notice, folks, that when he's afar off, we doubt. And when he comes close, somehow faith grips us and we win our world. Did you ever notice, folks, that when he's afar off some distance from us, then we have all kinds of bickering, we have all kinds of divisions, we, have all, we nurse all kinds of hurts, we have all kinds of divisions, but when he comes close, suddenly all the little differences between us kind of fade away and we come together in unity and the Holy Spirit hits us and we go out and shake our entire community. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that it's absolutely impossible to live for yourself when he is close? That if you're going to live for yourself, he has to be some distance away. Oh, it's very important that you understand the concept. Because the concept isn't, oh, I start living for myself. Jesus gets ticked off and goes some distance from me. No, no, that's not the concept. The concept is that Jesus, oh, he's close. I go some distance off and then I become capable of living for myself. And the very fact that I live for myself bespeaks the fact that I am some distance from him. For I'm incapable of living for myself when he is close. And the only possibility I've got for living for myself is to be some distance from him. See, the concept is, isn't that, oh, I sin, Jesus gets mad and goes some distance from me. No, no. The concept is, I go some distance from Jesus and then I become capable of sin. And whenever there's sin in my life, you can be rest assured of one thing. I'm some distance from him. And the sin didn't drive me some distance from him. I had to go some distance from him before I could ever get into sin. You see, we don't grow cold when he is near. We have to go some distance from him. And then the result of that is we grow cold. And the coldness itself is evidence. Oh my, I'm some distance from him. See, you don't become lukewarm and God gets mad and leaves. No, no. You see, we go some distance from him. And the result of that is our lukewarmness. And the very fact that we have lukewarmness in our lives bespeaks the fact that we are some distance from him. 
the thermometer, the barometer, the measuring stick of your entire spiritual life is how close are you? And you know, I've discovered when I get far away from him, I, I substitute things in my language for him. See, when I get far from him, I talk about church programs and I talk about I did this and I talk about that and I talk about how I did and I talk about him over there and then I'm, see, when I, when I, but when I'm real close to him, you know what I talk about? I talk about him and the dynamic of who he is and what he's doing in my life and how the word is coming alive. Isn't that interesting? And it all has to do with how close are you? And the whole message, folks, is simple, isn't it? Would you come on back? I'm not talking church. Would you come on back? I'm not talking tithing. Would you come on back? I'm not talking teaching a class. Would you come on back to Him? See, it's easier to get wrapped up in the church than it is Him. It's easier to get wrapped up in the music program than it is Him. It's easier for me to get wrapped up in preaching than it is to get wrapped up in Him. It's easier to get wrapped up in programs that will win a community than it is Him. But see, would you come on back? The whole message here is, hey, He came. Would you get close again? Would you get close again? Because when He gets close, then doubts cannot stay. When He gets close, then suddenly things begin to change. When He gets close. How close are you? Oh, back to the concept. See, there's this inner relationship between this whole business of the person, the living word and the written word and the interaction of those and the word itself has this power about it and this life about it. But you understand that's all derived from this person. So you're not surprised as he moves in to talk about the word, the words of Jesus in the last three verses. How does he uh, introduce that whole subject? He came, Jesus drew close, and all that he's going to say is going to have the power of this living person. And the whole focus is on this person himself, who is the power of the word that's going to speak out. Which brings us then not only to the coming of his person, but number two, verse 18, the communication of his projection. Did you notice in verse 18 that he tells us twice? That's redundant, isn't it? He tells us twice. Why did he need to do that? He tells us twice that Jesus spoke. Look at, look at the language he uses. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying... What do you need to put that on there? Why didn't he just write like this? And Jesus came and spoke to them. All authority has been given to me. Why did he tack on this word saying? Isn't he telling us twice that Jesus is saying something? Well, it would appear that way, of course, in the English. But the interesting thing is when you get down to the original language, the word spoke there in verse 18 and the word saying, two different words. And he's communicating two distinct different things that's very significant in what he's trying to do in the concept oh the word spoke and spoke to them that has to do that particular word has to do with a contrast over against silence in other words he's been silent all this time now he breaks his silence and he speaks well, what about what did he say? That's not under consideration in that word. What's the content of his message? That has nothing to do with this. The emphasis of this word is he literally spoke. He said something. He broke silence. He's now speaking. 
That's the significance of the word. And let me give you an example of it so you'll understand where it's coming from. For instance, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, they brought a blind and mute, dumb man to Jesus. He cannot see and he cannot speak. He's demon-possessed. And lo and behold, Jesus moves into the scene and delivers him right on the spot. And you know what immediately happens? Hey, the guy begins to see and he spoke. That's the word right here. That word right here is used there. He spoke. What did he say? That's immaterial. It's the fact that the guy has not been speaking all this time. And brother, now he's opened up his mouth and he's talking. A miracle has taken place. And the whole emphasis upon the fact he spoke. That's the word right here. Uh, let me give you another example. There's Zechariah. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 64. Zacharias is the father of John the Baptist. He's, he's gone in. Hey, he's old, about to retire, you know. And his wife is beyond the point of bearing children. And he goes into this temple. And lo and behold, years ago, you understand, years ago, they'd prayed for a child. But hey, they quit praying for that a long time ago. But isn't it interesting? God doesn't forget. See, they give it up. He goes into the temple and the angel appears and says, hey, you're going to have a son. And he just couldn't believe it. The angel said, okay, if that's the way you feel about it, you're not going to talk until he's born. So Zacharias is mute. He cannot talk. He comes out of there, can't say a word, has to write notes. For nine solid months until the birth of his son, John the Baptist, he cannot speak. And John the Baptist is born and the minute John is born, wow, his tongue is turned loose and this word right here is used. He spoke. Well, what did he say? That's immaterial. The fact is, he had been silent for nine months and now he's speaking. That's the emphasis. The same emphasis is given to us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 where it says that God in various ways and in various times in the past has spoken, there's the word, has spoken to us through the prophets. Well, what did he say? That's immaterial. The fact and the emphasis is upon the fact that God literally opened up his mouth and spoke. Now take that whole concept and bring it right into here, into this word, because that's the content of what he's trying to give us with this word, that literally he is speaking. Jesus opened up his mouth and spoke. Now, you really see that as significant when you understand that in this chapter, there are no resurrection appearances listed to the disciples except this one. All the other times that Jesus appeared in his resurrected form to his disciples, Matthew leaves them out. We have one appearance in this chapter other than this one we're dealing with. One appearance, and that was Jesus' resurrected appearance to the two ladies. The rest of the time, hey, it's totally void. Now, Matthew certainly knew about those other appearances. Jesus came and passed through the wall and sat down at the table and ate. Right there in Jerusalem, before they ever got to Galilee. Why wouldn't Matthew write about that? He leaves that totally out. In fact, Jesus returned when Thomas was there and did the same thing. Matthew leaves that out. There was the Emmaus Road scene. Wow. Two men felt their hearts strangely warm when Jesus showed up in his resurrected form. But Matthew leaves all that out. The way Matthew writes this whole thing, and it isn't that he's contradicting anybody, you understand, but he's got something he's trying to say to us. The way Matthew writes this thing is, the angel shows up and says to the ladies, go tell the guys to go to Galilee. Jesus wants to see them. Then as they're going to tell the guys Jesus himself shows up to the ladies and says hey verse 9 verse 10 you go tell them go tell them that I want to see them in, in Galilee tell them I'm anxious to see them in Galilee I've got an appointment there with them 
And then the scene develops and here are the disciples now coming to Galilee and it's as if Matthew's saying all the other appearances and all the other stuff that Jesus had to say, all the other times He appeared and all the things He communicated really fade in light of this one single thing that He's going to tell them here. And it's like Jesus broke silence on these three verses. It's like what he has to say here is so significant and so valuable and so important that this is spilling right out of his heart, that this is his very pulse beat, that this is what's so important to him. This is such top priority that anything else he said in all of the other resurrection appearances fades into the background. And this is the final word of Jesus. And he opened up his mouth and spoke. And the whole emphasis here is on the significance of his speaking. Wow, I'll not get this communicated to you. But you know what I believe deep in my heart? I believe that same identical thing is happening right here in this hour tonight. I know God has spoken to you in the past. I understand that. I know that He's spoken to us through nature. I, I know that. I understand that God has spoken to us in conviction of sin and we got saved and I understand all of that. And I know that there's been times we've prayed for guidance and God has come through and spoken to us and that's significant and I'm not undermining that at all. But in light of this hour, ladies and gentlemen, in light of what's going on, in light of the crisis moment we are in, in light of what's going on in our society, in light of what's taking place in your church, in light of where you are in your spiritual journey, in light of what's going down at this moment, do you understand that it's almost as if everything God has set up to this time fades into the background and that He comes here tonight and opens up His mouth and breaks silent and gives you some kind of final word in these three verses? That what he's saying here is so, is so straight out of his heart. What he's saying here is such, it, it's, is so strong in his mind. What, what he's saying here is such a, a top priority in his thought process. And it just burns in his soul in such deep ways that it's as if everything else he said fades in light of this one thing he wants to communicate to you. Could you come? to these three verses with that sense. Well, what's he trying to say to me, preacher? Well, that brings us to the third, the content of his pronouncement, which is the word saying. Now, you understand in verse 18, and Jesus came, the coming of his person, and he spoke. That's emphasis there is upon the fact that he broke silent and places significant importance upon what he's now going to say. Has nothing to do with content. He spoke to them. Now the word saying has to do with content. In fact, the word saying there is really interesting because it literally means picked out. In other words, he's saying that Jesus picked out these words that he put together a, a discourse that he did not ramble 
He didn't just say anything that he handpicked these words in a spatial discourse to lay out truth that again, this is the burn of his heart. That again, this is the priority of his mind. That again, this is the drive of his entire being. That somehow wrapped up in these three verses are the, is the handpicked message that he's just got to get through to his disciples. You about What is the content? Could I summarize it for you? With two ideas. One, focus. Two, flow. Oh, you already got the focus. We've talked about it. Well, sure, the focus in verse 18 is all on what? Him. And the message is, hey, would you guys come, please, and focus on me? Would you get your eyes off of your problems? Would you get your guys, would you guys get your eyes off of what you can't do? Would you get your eyes off of what, how little you have? Would you get your eyes off of how little talent you're in? Would you get your eyes off? Would you just come back? Would you, would you just focus on me? You know, one of the things that just startled me about this whole deal and spilling into the book of Acts is that not one, do you realize that not one single time in the book of Acts was the success of the early church ever attributed to, to anything that the disciples did or had. It never says one single time, Woo! those early apostles had PhDs in church growth. It never talks about, wow, they had charismatic personalities. It never talks about, woo, they had microphones and a quartet. Boy, could they harmonize. That there is never one single time. In, in fact, the whole thing is shoved in the other direction. It keeps telling you that these guys are ignorant and unlearned men, fishermen. It never talks about their tremendous organizational skills and they put together. It never talks about their strategy that they laid out. It never talks about anything about them that the whole significance of the success, the growth, the outspill of the kingdom of God in the book of Acts, it always comes back to, woo, him. It was always about him. That the focus was always on what he's doing and where he's going and his resource and his dynamic and what he's all about. That it's all wrapped up in Him. Whew. Man, am I under conviction. Because do you realize what that does to us? That strips us of every single excuse we've got. That if that is true, ladies and gentlemen, there is absolutely no reason why we can't shake our entire community and sweep our whole world into the kingdom if it's all about Him, if He's the entire resource, if the whole focus is on Him, if this is not about you, if this is about Him, then you somehow in this are not really all that significant. I mean, what you can do and your talent and your ability really isn't the deal here. That the deal here is all about Him and who He is. That's the entire focus. Well, surely, preacher, I come into this someplace, don't I? Oh, that's the second part as you move into verse 19 and 20 because it's all about the flow. Oh, yeah, you become the channel through which he flows. 
See, he is the entire deal. And would you please just become a vessel through which he can flow his dynamic to the world? See if, you, if you've got this. Do you know how few people ever make the transition in their mind from what I do for Jesus to what he does through me? Do you realize that everywhere you go in the evangelical church, the constant emphasis is on what we are doing for Christ? And do you know how anti-New Testament that really is? That we are never called upon to do anything for Christ. We are called to let Him do everything through us. In fact, the Scripture tells us that everything you do for Him is illegitimate. And the only thing that's legitimate is what he does through you. In fact, in John 15, 5, in the whole vine and branch parable, the whole emphasis is, without me, you can do nothing. Because everything you do without him is nothing. So everything you do for him equals zero. And everything he does through you. Wouldn't it be awful, ladies and gentlemen, to come up to the end of this thing and find out I worked my fingers to the bone for the church. I scraped, I prayed, I did all these jobs, I gave all this money, and I endured all these sermons. And I just went through this whole thing, and it all ended up to mean nothing. Because I never, ever allowed him to do through me. You know why we don't like that? Because you see, if everything is Him and He's doing through me, then you can't come and applaud and say, yes, old manly, you're great. No, you have to say, woo, what a Jesus. You're not much manly, but whoa, what a Jesus. See, the whole appeal of this final chapter is all about here is the dynamic of the person and here is his word that has overwhelming power. And what is he wanting you? What is he calling you to by the power of that word? He's calling you back to one single thing that you might focus on him entirely and allow him in the power of his word just to flow through you and permeate your society. See, we're not asking young people tonight to give their talent to Christ. Don't give your talent to Jesus. What would he want it for? Man, he can turn stones into the children of Abraham who can sing and preach better than you ever could. Jesus doesn't need my talent. We're not calling people tonight to give their time to Christ. Man, He doesn't need your time. Wait, you think He needs your money? We preachers need your money. He doesn't need your money. Man, he, see, this is not about give your money to Jesus, brother. Don't you understand what this is all about? Would you become a glove into which He can jam His hand and dynamically act through you? Would you become the skin that He puts on and begins to wear you all over your world and begins to flow through you? Would you literally let the mind of Christ be in you? All that I might have the mind that was in Christ Jesus that I might think like he thinks and that his brain power his wisdom would somehow flow through me and I would be somehow the evidence of his thought process see I don't want Jesus to repair my heart valves I want him to rip open my chest yank my heart out put his in until I'd be the throbbing heart of God to my world and when you walk down the street people would see the throbbing heart of God beating in me 
Do you know anything about that? Are you just busy doing all these religious things? Are you just busy meeting all these requirements? Busy keeping all these laws and keeping the program of the church going and satisfying your conscience with that and coming to the altar when you're supposed to and giving money when you're supposed to and supporting when you're supposed to, which makes you feel okay? Or do you know something about, whoo, God is literally moving through me and I'm, act, I, I'm like a spectator to my own life because through me God is doing what I'm totally incapable of doing and I can't even believe it myself. Because somehow you've gotten at his heart and you've been filled with the very essence of his being and he through you is now manifesting himself to literally shake your world. Jesus. I worked like a dog for you. Did all these neat things and thought you'd be pleased. And here all the time, I was complicating the whole thing for you. I was literally getting in your way. Tell you what I want to do tonight, Jesus. I want out of your way. I want to clear the stage of my life and say, Oh, Jesus, come and act on the stage of my life. I want to risk everything there is about me. I want to risk it all that you in your divine activity might come and fill me and do through me what you want to do. I put no restraints on you, no conditions, Jesus. I just tell you, here is my flesh. Take over. Do in and through me what you want to do. I give you the right to take over my mind. I give you the right to possess my inner heart. I give you the right to possess my hands, my feet. As you had your own hands 2,000 years ago, I want you now to have mine. As you had your own feet, 2,000 years ago. I want you now to have mine as you had your own face 2,000 years ago. Tonight I want you to have mine. Would you form your face in me? Reshape my face any way you want to. Oh, that I might know you. Deep within my soul I want to know you. I would give my final breath to know you in your death and your resurrection. Oh, I want to know you more. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old, the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit BraveheartedVoices.com.